0: When we began uh, the book of Luke, I think I only had like three kids back then. Uh, It was so long ago that we started the book of Luke. But um, when we started, I promised to break down this book into three different sections um, so that we could kind of tackle it in pieces. Series 1 was chapter 1 of Luke all the way through chapter 9, verse 50. And it was titled, The Arrival and the Work of the Son of Man. Uh, The emphasis of that first section of the book of Luke was on the Galilean ministry and was particularly prone to showing the miraculous signs that Jesus gave to us to show that he truly was the one sent of God. Uh, We took a break after the first section, did some other things, and then came back to uh, to Luke in chapter 9, verse 51, and the second section comprises all the way through chapter 18, verse 30, which is where we're going to stop today. Uh, This is called The Teachings of the Son of Man, and as you might have picked up, the emphasis in this section was on the parables and the different truths that Jesus taught as He gathered with groups and was confronted by Pharisees and different folks. And this ministry was characterized as the Judean ministry. Through this ministry, Jesus was moving southward from the Galilean region towards Jerusalem to His ultimate goal, um, which would be expressed in the third series of Luke, The Sacrificial Love of the Son of Man. Um, Jesus' final move towards Jerusalem and his work on the cross. Now we had intended originally to uh, take a break between uh, the second series and the third series but as I started to do the math I realized I would really like to end with the cross in Easter next year so in order to fit all that in we're going to finish up series two today. Next week we're going to begin series three right away and then I'm going to take a break in Luke from November to December where we're going to talk about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation of the Church. We're going to talk about some of the impact that some of the Reformers had on what church is today and and how we uh, believe salvation. And then we're going to, in December, focus, of course, on the Nativity and the coming of Jesus Christ. So that should line us up to end with the Easter... Um, The Easter topic of the cross and the resurrection right with uh, the the book of Luke as we finish out this great tour that we've taken through this wonderful gospel. So this is the last sermon of our second section of Luke. We've been inching uh, closer towards Jerusalem and the task for which Jesus took on flesh, for why he came to this earth. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 18 today. A well-to-do young man is going to approach Jesus. He's going to ask him an important question about what he needs to do in order to inherit eternal life. And if that is something that you want, uh, I want you to pay close attention today because that will be the topic of what we're discussing. So beginning in chapter 18, verse 18, I will read. I hope that you'll follow along. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow after me. Similar to last week, this story is recorded in each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke and each one of them adds small details which round out our understanding of the story. From all three, we get a better composite sketch of who this gentleman was who approached Jesus and what motivated him to ask this important question. All three accounts tell us that the man was rich. Luke is the only gospel that adds that he was some kind of a ruler. Now the word ruler in the Greek is a generic term for one who has authority over others. It's used frequently of different people in the Jewish society, particularly of the people who served on the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Seventy. That was a group of Jewish individuals who had to interact with the Roman government so that the Jewish people could maintain some degree of independence so they could still continue to apply the law of the Old Testament to their own communities. And so it's possible that this man was a a member of the Sanhedrin. It's possible that this man was a leader of a synagogue. The synagogues were the places of local worship. Of course, the Jewish people desired uh, to take their sacrifices to Jerusalem and offer them in the temple, but they also wanted to be worshiping God regularly as we worship God on Sunday mornings, gathering together, so that we can encourage one another and keep the Lord in front of our, eye, our eyes on a regular basis. We don't want God to be a distant thought. We want Him to be right in front of us. And so the synagogue was a place where the people would gather on the Sabbath, they would read Scripture together. They would pray for the needs of the community. They would talk about the things of God. And it's possible that this man was a local synagogue ruler. We don't really know. The Scripture has not lined it out for us. All we can do is speculate. This man's not necessarily a Pharisee, but he does share some of the mindset that was common among those men we've been encountering from time to time who often were opposed to Jesus. He is focused on what he can do to inherit eternal life. And that was very characteristic of the Pharisees, who often focused on their actions, their righteousness. There appears to be a sincere respect for Jesus and a real desire to learn from him, though. According to Mark, 17, or Mark chapter 10, verse 17, the young man came running, to Jesus. And he knelt before him as he asked this question, which would have been a sign of respect and at the very least great fascination in Jesus and what he might learn from the man. Matthew 19:20 tells us that he was young. In light of last week's admonition to have childlike faith that we read, we can guess that maybe he's more open to being taught because of his youth because of his youthful age. Now, don't suspect him to be a child. You're not usually a child if you're a ruler, but it probably meant that he was in his 30s or his 40s. The man of authority addresses Jesus as good teacher. The term teacher is generic. If this man considered himself a follower of Jesus, it's very likely that he would have used the term good master or Lord. That's what Jesus' disciples used to address him with often in the book of Luke. But he doesn't call him that. He just calls him teacher, which is more open-ended. But he calls him good is somewhat surprising. And it inspires an interesting response from our Lord. Jesus asks, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is, God. So he wants to know his reasoning here. He's kind of questioning him about this title. Do you think perhaps this young ruler came and called Jesus a a good teacher out of flattery? Was he trying to butter Jesus up or get on his good side? Sort of like if you've got a kid who comes up to you and says, Mom, you are the best. You're always looking out for me. You've always got my back, Mom. And I just, I appreciate you. I was praying this morning about how grateful I am for you. By the way, can I have 20 bucks? I need to go to the movies. (laughs) You know, that's, that's some of the reason why we might often tell somebody that they're good or, 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 or give them compliments. So maybe this guy is coming to Jesus and he's calling him good teacher because he wants a, favorable response from Jesus. But we don't know that. Perhaps it's just a thoughtless gesture of kindness. He's just being nice. Maybe he's just saying, good teacher, because that's what you do when you're talking to people. You, you, you talk positively towards them. Maybe it's a general expression of his trust in the way that Jesus teaches. Maybe he's saying, wow, I've heard you teach a couple times and you do a good job. I really, I got something from what you were saying and, and I, you, you made things clear to me. Maybe... Maybe this is a soft confession that this guy is making that he knows there's something special about Jesus. Maybe he realizes that he's not just a teacher, that he's a good teacher. There's something particularly unique about him, and that's why he's come to him with this very important question. Well, whatever the reason was, Jesus says, why do you call me good? But he doesn't wait for a response, does he? He moves back to that question on eternal life, but first he gives him some more things to think about in regards to who and what is good. No one is good but one, that is, God. Now Jesus couldn't have said a safer, more believable statement to that crowd of Jewish people that had gathered there to hear him. It was almost universally accepted in the Hebrew culture that God, the great I Am, was the only being in the world who had a right to lay hold of the claim to be good. Listen to what the scripture says about his goodness. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 25, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, 8. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 86, 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 100, verse 5. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 107.1. And I could give you many, many more references to the goodness of the Lord God. What He does is good. Who He is, is intrinsically good. He defines what is good. He never varies from the good. God is not up in heaven with a list of things that He's got to do in order to be good. He is, in his very being, in his essence, goodness. So everything that the Lord does is good. He cannot do what is wrong. And if we are to know good, we need to seek to know God. Man, however, not so much, right? Man is not good. At least not in the same ways and to the same extent that God is good. Man was made good. God crafted him to show the goodness of God in all of his creation. God made man in his image to reflect some of these attributes that are so praiseworthy within God himself. But because of our sin, man is a fallen creation. Because every one of us has chosen to break the commands of God, we all bear the burden of iniquity. We have broken God's command and become, in essence, enemies to the Lord God. We have corrupted the goodness that we were made with. Now man leans towards wickedness, even from his youth. He's not as bad as he could be, thanks to the grace of God, but every man and woman battles against their natural selfish desire to serve themselves rather than to glorify the God that they were made to serve. And so by asking this man why he called Jesus good, is Jesus denying his own personal goodness? Is he, in a sense, confessing that he's not good, only God is good? You know, there are many who question the divinity of Jesus Christ. We are a church that preaches that the Trinity is real. It is expressed throughout the Scripture that God is one being in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They exist in a way that none of us can really relate to because all of us are one being with one spirit. I am a human being and I have a human nature. God, on the other hand, is one being, but inside of that one being are three distinct persons, each with unique roles and responsibilities, each with with some unique characteristics, but all those characteristics work in absolutely perfect harmony with one another. Some would argue that Jesus is not God in the flesh, that he is not divine, and they would point to the scripture and say, Jesus is here confessing that he's not even good. So how can you say that Jesus is God? But is that really what Jesus is doing here? Is Jesus confessing that he's not good? Or is he trying to get this man, who's come to ask him a question, is he trying to get him to ask better questions? Is he trying to get this man to think about what goodness really is? You see, Jesus is challenging this rich young ruler to see him for what he is. Jesus is a good teacher because Jesus is God. Not because he is a better orator or because he has studied harder than anybody else. Jesus is the good teacher because he is literally God in the flesh. He has the mind of the Father. Jesus confesses his own goodness in other parts of Scripture. Look at John 10, 11, where Jesus says, Without shame, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He lays it down for them. In John 8, 46, Jesus asks if anyone can prove him to be guilty of sin. He says, Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? In other words, he was openly inviting the Pharisees and those who had challenged him to show where he had erred, to show where he had broken God's command in any way, shape, or form. See, I couldn't do that to you because I'm sure there are some of you who could say, I know when you've sinned, Pastor. I've seen you do it. I'm just a man. I'm not God. So I cannot say that I am a perfectly good teacher, but Jesus could lay hold to that claim. Other people have spoken of the the goodness of Jesus the Messiah as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which tells us that Jesus was a perfect high priest who had no sin in him. He wasn't like the priests that we've had to interact with throughout the ages, human priests or human pastors who might have good intentions but are flawed, Jesus was a perfect high priest for us. Hebrews 7.26 goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus knew no sin, that he was holy and innocent, that he was unstained, that he was separated from sinners. In other words, he was like in a class of his own. He wasn't like the rest of us who are doing the best we can, some of which are doing better than others. No, Jesus was perfect, spotless, and for that reason, worthy of being exalted. And then look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus knew no sin. That does not mean that Jesus was like this when it came to sin, that he was absolutely oblivious to the things of sin in the world. He knew of sin, he understood sin, but this word know means to experience it for yourself, to understand it from experience. Jesus had never committed sin himself. And yet, in humility, he allowed himself to be made sin for us so that our sinfulness could be put to death on the cross at Calvary. So in this first exchange, Jesus is challenging the man to think, to examine his own understanding of what it means to be good. Often we come to God with our own questions, and the scripture says, ask better ones. What does it mean to be good? And why is it important that Jesus is the truly good teacher? Jesus continues by saying, You know the commandments. Now, he doesn't go and list all the commandments. He lists some very specific ones. Let's see if, if we, can, we can focus on that for just a moment here. If you know the Ten Commandments, you might be familiar with the fact that the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue as it is sometimes called, can be broken down into two sections. The first four commandments are sometimes referred to as the first table. And they all have something in common. They all teach man how to interact with God. That first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, we are to worship and love the Lord God and Him alone. Nobody else is to get our worshipful love. Only Jesus deserves that. Only the Lord God deserves that. We are to make no idols, no graven images of this God. We're not supposed to try to make an image of Him and then worship that image. Instead, we should, we should worship God Himself. We are to honor His name and to not use it vainly. We are to practice the Sabbath. The, the Jewish people were to practice the Sabbath because that Sabbath pointed them to the holiness of God. It helped them to have regularly this practice of listening to His Scripture and returning to His law and giving Him glory and honor and praise. So those first four verses are all focused on our relationship that is vertical, our relationship with God Himself. Now the next six verses, the next six commands in Exodus 20, are called sometimes the second table. And these commands all focus on how we interact with each other. How we interact with God first then, once that is established, how do I treat my fellow neighbor, my brother or sister? So we are told that we are to honor our mother and our father. We are told that we are not to murder or take life from other people. We are to keep our marriage vows, holy and not commit adultery. We're not to steal. We're not to lie to other people. We're not to covet what other people have, but instead be very grateful for what God has chosen to give us. So you see this, that, that distinction, these two sets of, of rules that together make up the Ten Commandments. Which table does Jesus give this man instruction from? Look at those verses again. First table or second table? Second table. Jesus is instructing this man, or reminding him, of the Ten Commandments that have to do with his interactions with other people. You might remember that in Luke 10, we had a gentleman come to Jesus and ask him almost exactly the same question that the rich young ruler asked today. He said, Teacher, how may I inherit eternal life? This is in the story of the Good Samaritan. And when Jesus responded to that man, he didn't take from the second table, he pointed him to the first table. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He reminded him of that first commandment that he is to put God first in his worshipful affection. So, Jesus has already covered that topic, and now he's addressing the second table with this y- rich young ruler. So, it's very interesting how Luke has brought these two together to show us how Jesus honors all of the Ten Commandments. The ruler responds to him and says, You know what? All these rules that you've just reported back to me, I've kept them from my youth, I've kept them since I was a child. It's important in the Hebrew context to recognize that until a child was about 13 years old, if he committed sins and there was some sort of obligation to be paid back, the father was responsible for the sins of his child. The Jewish community didn't believe a child was really yet able to be responsible for his actions until he was about 13 years of age. That's why today you still hear of this thing called a bar mitzvah. That means that you have become a son of the law. Literally, bar mitzvah means son of the law. That you are now Under the law and responsible for your own actions. You are to act as a man acts. So this man is saying, since my age of accountability, I have followed these laws that you have just mentioned to me. I have been keeping them very, very carefully. Now, could he have done that perfectly? Is that even possible? We know that it is likely not, although within the context of the Hebrew culture, the rabbis often taught that you should be held accountable for your actions from the time that you become a man or you become an adult. And we even see evidence in Philippians three six where Paul is recounting his Jewish background. And he says that when, when it concerns the things of righteousness, the law of Moses, that he considered himself blameless. He had worked so hard at keeping the law that in comparison to his countrymen, in comparison to his peers, he was blameless in the law. So this idea that this rich young ruler could have kept the, 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 the rules of men, was, he was referring to relative goodness. In other words, you compare me to other people and I've been keeping this law A+. plus. I've been doing my best work. I'm an exemplary keeper of the law of Moses. Relative goodness. I'm relatively good compared to everyone else around me. Jesus is pulling his attention in a different direction and trying to challenge him to think about not just relative goodness, but absolute goodness. When we compare our righteousness to God's righteousness, how does it look? Not so good. When we see all the good things that we do, and we consider the great holy heart of God, and how he never sins, and how he never does what is wretched, or dark, or wrong, then all of our good works seem like, what, filthy rags, in comparison to what the Lord God does in goodness. So though relative goodness, this rich young ruler believed himself to be relatively good, Jesus wants him to think in terms of absolute goodness today. Compared to the standards of God, even good men aren't considered good. And then Jesus puts before him a test of the heart. So this man has confessed that he's kept the law, so Jesus is, he's not telling him otherwise, but he he gives him a challenge here. Let's see the motivation behind your actions. He says, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor. That's a second table command, isn't it? Distribute to the poor. You will store up treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. Jesus asked the man to do what he could only do, if he trusted Jesus implicitly. And we see from his response that he did not yet do that. This rich young ruler could not follow through with that one last command. Following rules is something he had excelled at for many years. Since he left childhood and became an adult and became accountable for his actions. But when Jesus personalizes it and demands of this man something as dear to him as his own wealth, which he has worked so hard to accumulate for himself, the man cannot muster the strength to give it up. He had so much, you might say he had too much to lose, and so sadly he could not keep this new commandment that Jesus gave to him. In a way, the young man's unwillingness to follow this command reveals that he had not indeed kept all of the commandments. Though he had been good to people and followed the second table commands very diligently, he apparently was falling short in the first table commands by loving his wealth more than he loved God. For the man who hoped to walk away with an even greater self-confidence than he came with, this test resulted in sorrow. What Jesus invited him to do, the man would not or could not do. And so looking at verse 24, we continue in this passage of Luke 18. And when Jesus saw the man, that he became became very sorrowful. I want to add something right here. If we were reading Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, he includes this little detail that is so important. Mark says, when he saw this man, he loved him. When he saw this man and his reaction and how this man went from being very encouraged to be talking with Jesus to then becoming very sad and withdrawn because he couldn't do what Jesus called him to do, Mark says that Jesus loved the man. You see, he's not trying to shame the man. He's not calling him out on the carpet so that he can look like a fool in front of his peers and send him away with his tail between his legs. That's not his desire at all. Jesus loved this man. He cared for him. And he knew that there was something wrong with the way this man was living his life. That's great that he was keeping commandments. It's great that he was doing good things. But there was something missing that was essential for this man's eternal life. He needed to love God more than everything. Even more than his own personal wealth. And Jesus knew that that wasn't the case with this man. So he couldn't bear to just let the man continue thinking he was righteous and send him on his way. He had to, in love, show him the truth. The truth can hurt sometimes. But Jesus was not cruel to send this man away thinking that he was fine and justified when in reality he needed to think more. He needed to think about who was really his God, what he truly worshipped, and to what extent was he willing to do what God called him to do. So when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And those who heard him said, Who then can be saved? But he said, These things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The camel was the biggest common animal in Palestine. The eye of the needle was essentially the smallest practical opening that people would interact with regularly. Jesus is dealing with extremes here. And the people who hear him teach this truth are astonished. It is too extreme for them. They don't understand. And it's been too extreme for many scholars over the years, too, who think this is too harsh of an illustration. In fact, some have given theories about why maybe we're not reading this correctly. One scholar would say that the eye of the needle actually refers to a specific gate in Jerusalem. You know that Jerusalem was surrounded by a a large wall to protect that city and keep it fortified? And some scholars say, well, there is there is a gate that was sometimes called the eye of the needle, and it was very low, so it was hard to get a camel through that gate, but if you got it down on its knees, you could kind of push from behind, and you could get a camel through that, 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 that gate. So maybe that's what Jesus was talking about there. Another scholar writes that in the Greek language, the original word for camel is camelon, whereas there is another Greek word very similar to it, which can be translated as cable, or maybe thread. It's, it's almost as hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven as it is to thread a needle. Hard, but not impossible. But both of those interpretations of this text would miss the point. Not only are they foreign to the text, we've got no indication that that's what Luke intended when he wrote these things down, or that Jesus intended when he preached it. Both of those interpretations would miss the point. It is not hard to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. You could put a camel in a blender and you would not be able to get it through the eye of a needle. It's never going to happen. That's the point. If this man came to Jesus today hoping to hear that he had done enough, he was going to be sent away sad. If that man came to Jesus hoping to hear that he would almost done enough and he just needed a couple more things to check off his list, then he was going to be sad when he went away. Because there's not enough this man could possibly do if he worked for the rest of his life and make a way for himself to get into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot do this except by faith in Jesus. That which is impossible for man is only possible when we put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Is it easier for a poor man to get into heaven than a rich man? Based on the context, we must interpret this as telling us that the condition of affluence, we need to be careful about it, because it can make it significantly more difficult to receive the Kingdom of God like a little child, like we talked about last week. Wealth tends to feed a very powerful lie, that we have the capacity to overcome any obstacle that we run into on our own, if we just work hard enough, if we just wait long enough, if we just endure, we can do it. That's a lie that man has been telling himself since the very beginning, but it is a lie nonetheless. Money does solve lots of problems, doesn't it? If I have tons of money, I don't go hungry. If I have tons of money, I'm safer. If I have tons of money, I'm more comfortable. I have options, I have greater freedoms but money brings problems of its own. And if we're not aware of this, then the very wealth that so many people are praying that God would bless them with can add to the lie that is keeping them from the truth that they need none of that wealth as much as they need Jesus Christ, their Savior. So friends, we do need to establish a certain degree of distrust for wealth that even if God chooses to give us much wealth, that we would keep it in proper perspective, that we would never put our hope and trust in that wealth, that we would not see that wealth as evidence that we are somehow better than our peers, more capable, more able. I lived in Mill Valley for a time, which is about 45 minutes out of San Francisco, Uh, maybe not that long, maybe 25 minutes out of San Francisco, And it's a very affluent area. It just so happened that the seminary, the Southern Baptist Seminary there, was in that location for generations before I got there. It has since moved to Fremont because uh, the area is very expensive and it was difficult to do ministry there. But when I would go to that seminary, I would drive past five, six million dollar homes to get to my dinky little one-bedroom apartment in the woods out there on the peninsula. And there were so many people in that community in Marin that were brilliant. Brilliant. they had minds that I could not keep up with them intellectually. There were people there that were creative beyond imagination. They had ideas I I couldn't have thought of on my own. People like the Pixar executives and and, uh, uh, Jim Henson uh, lives out in in, in the Marin, Marin area, Mill Valley area. There were people that had been so successful that they never had to think about money again for the rest of their lives. And yet in that area of Mill Valley there was so much dark emptiness in the people who lived there. People who had won according to the world. But because they did not have Jesus Christ, and maybe even worse, because they could not bear to see their need for Jesus Christ, there was very little hope for them. This life might have been more comfortable for them than it would be for me, or for you, or for a number of people in our community. But the life to come was hopeless without Jesus. We should have a healthy distrust for wealth. We should never see wealth as an indicator that we need Christ less than the person sitting next to us. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. And the people respond, who can be saved then? They felt that if if the rich people who were they had to be blessed by God or else they wouldn't be rich. If they couldn't make it into heaven, then what hope did they have of making it into heaven? They were frustrated. They were exasperated. What does it mean then? Are you saying that none of us are going to make it into heaven? Jesus doesn't re- respond and say, Well, the poor, of course, will make it into heaven. Y'all just need to sell all you have and give it to the poor and then, and then follow after me. And once you're poor, then you'll get into heaven. The answer is not poverty. The answer is a right view of wealth. The the answer is a, a healthy understanding of what little good prosperity can do for us. It is impossible to save yourself by your works, but the impossible is possible with God. What we could not accomplish on our own, God can do for us through Jesus Christ. Salvation is the impossible solution to the life or death problem that we all face. God, in His great mercy and kindness, has granted to us what we could never acquire for ourselves. He has granted it to us as a gift of grace. Some of you might have heard this described before as the great exchange. And it is one of the most marvelous mysteries of our faith. Why would God who is perfectly sufficient and happy in and of himself. Uh, He's not lonely. He is not lacking anything. We do not have something that he does not have already. Why would this perfect and mighty and all-knowing God choose to offer up Jesus Christ, his spotless son, in exchange for our what? Sinfulness? Our wretched depravity. Why would God approach us? Why would He intervene into our lives and say, though you are a rebel against me, though you have dishonored me and you have shamed me, though I gave you all that you have, your life is thanks to me, and yet you've turned your back on me, you have tried tried to be God without me, even though you've done all those things and you should be rightfully called my enemy, I want to offer you an exchange for your broken and sinful life, I offer you up the perfect life of my son, Jesus Christ. Give me your broken life, and I will redeem you and make you new. This great exchange makes no human sense if you think about it. Why would God ever do something like that? The only answer is that he is a God of incredible love. Love is just not what you can get from somebody else. True, powerful love is what you can give to others. And God, because of his agape love for us, saw us in our depravity and knew we could not save ourselves and has chosen instead to save us through his efforts, through his great work. This is the core, the heart of the gospel message. Praise be to the Lord who has decided to save us who could not save ourselves. Luke goes on and Chapter, or chapter 18, verse 28, to give us the response that the disciples had uh, to this man's sadness. The other Gospels tell us that the man walked away with a, with a heavy heart. This rich, rich young ruler just sort of drifted off. But each of the Gospels record what Peter said in response to what he had just witnessed. Verse 28, and Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. And so he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus responds positively to Peter's comment. So we should not see it as Peter boastfully saying, "Well, that guy failed, but we sure got it figured out." Peter was simply acknowledging a truth that had become real to him that, "Yeah, I see what you mean, Jesus. We have given up things to follow you." That's what we had to do too. Jesus did not say to Peter, "Sell all your goods, give to the poor, come after me." But in a sense, didn't he? Remember when he met these disciples He challenged them and said, Leave what you know, leave what you were, and come be my disciples. Remember when he called Peter? At that very time, Jesus had told him to throw his nets into the water. Even though Peter was an experienced fisherman, he wasn't catching anything. Jesus said, Try the other side of the boat. They did, and those nets became so filled with fish when they tried to draw them up that the boat began to sink. They had to literally tow the net full of fish back to the shore so they could reap the harvest of fish. This is a financial windfall for Peter, who is a fisherman. This is like pay dirt for him. And in that moment of great profit, Jesus says, leave all this stuff. Leave it. Leave it behind and come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And so these disciples were not lying when they said that they had followed after Jesus. They had left their businesses. They had left their families behind. We know Peter was married. We have to assume that many of the other, if not all the other apostles, were married to women that weren't by them for a time as they went out and and learned from Jesus and preached the gospel with him. They had to sacrifice. They had to sacrifice the comfort of mainstream belief. All of their family, their brothers and sisters, their communities we're stuck in the Jewish mindset, and when Jesus came and said, I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for, they struggled to receive that. They struggled to believe it. They had to say, we're going to think differently than the rest of our brothers, even if that means we're going to be persecuted for it, even though we'll feel like outcasts from our own culture. We're going to follow after you, Jesus. They had to sacrifice potentially their safety, being a part of a Roman empire that was ever weary of uprisings, They were now following a man who called himself the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It was only a matter of time before the Romans began to point a finger at them and saying, are these guys insurrectionists? They crucified the Savior. Several of the disciples were also killed because of what they believed in and they were willing to follow after Jesus even if that meant their life would be demanded of them. The twelve walked away from much when they said yes to discipleship. Many others had tried. They wanted to be disciples. They had put their hands to the plow, but they looked back when things got harder. When Jesus began to preach the difficult things, when he said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot be numbered among my disciples. He wasn't talking about cannibalism, but the, the image was so shocking that the people said, I can't handle this. And many turned and walked away from him. Many who had called themselves disciples to that point. When he said, when you think about love, your love for me should be greater than the love you have for your mother and your father and your sister and your brother and your, even your own children many said they couldn't handle it they turned away and they walked away but these 12 had stuck by the side of their messiah they held firm they believed and so the savior helps these men have confidence in that decision by stating that there is no one who has left their home their parents their brothers their sister their wife or their children for the sake of the kingdom of god who shall not receive many times more. And here's the interesting detail. He does point to the future. That eternal life that the rich young ruler hoped to come and secure that day, he didn't have it. These twelve, or at least eleven of the twelve, had it. They would get a life that was greater than what we can experience in this world. But Jesus is also careful to point out that even in this world, they could look forward to the promise of many blessings that were greater than the things they left behind to follow Jesus. Of course we get to look forward to the benefits of heaven, the eternal life this rich young ruler sought after. But we also must realize that the great exchange results in inheritance we acknowledge and are benefited by here in this life, that it is greater than what we could have risked giving up. When you give up what the rich young ruler could not give up, when you give the Lord God your whole life and say, this is my life, I call you Lord, take what I am, do what you want with it, what do you gain? You gain the relief of forgiveness from all the sins you've ever committed or will ever commit. You no longer have to carry this burden on your own shoulders of knowing what no one else knows that you have done. You don't have to think of yourself as wretched and as a failure anymore because the Lord God has washed that record clean. You are now pure before Him. What else have you been given? You've been given the righteousness of Christ. God doesn't just clear your record, but now He sees you in a new light. The righteousness of Jesus, which is a righteousness that cannot be measured or rivaled, has now been imputed unto us. So when he looks down and sees his sons and his daughters, he doesn't see us struggling and trying to just barely get by, constantly failing and having to come back to the Lord. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. Can you believe that? God doesn't see us as enemies. He sees us as his family. He sees us in a way that he can be proud of us. Our righteousness is nothing, but we've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is everything. We've been given the family of believers that we can come together and have true relationships that are going to endure Forever. In the passage of Scripture that Pastor Chris read earlier in Ephesians, it says that we are gathered together in the heavens as one family with one name. And that name is Christ. Whatever your last name is right now, doesn't matter nearly as much as the one that's going to come after it. Christ. You belong to Him. You are part of His eternal family. And you can experience that blessing here on earth when you interact with your brothers and sisters who love this Lord that you love, who worship the God that you also worship. We've been given the wealth of of a right perspective. that we don't have to just walk through this life stumbling blindly, hoping to figure things out, but not really knowing if what we think is true or not. The scripture teaches us what is real, what is true, what is of God. And so we don't have to be wanderers anymore. We have direction. We have a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We've been given freedom from sin as an inheritance that we experience now in this earth. Those, Those ugly things that we used to be attracted to, that used to be addicted to, that we used to desire and long for, we don't have to be slaves to those things anymore. God and His power can set us free from all of that. What a blessing that we have, that Christ can have victory over our sins now, today. We have the joy of serving one another as we come together and use our spiritual gifts that God has given, that we can see others blessed by our work. We're no longer just a burden to other people, we're no longer trying to just get what we can out of this world for ourselves. But we've been given this great blessing in the exchange I spoke about earlier that now we can bless others with the power of God. We can show His love to those who are unloved. We can draw them near to us with arms of community. We get the genuine blessing of shared love. And we get the honor of participating in this holy, important mission that He has called each of us to. This mission of reaching the lost and plucking them from from condemnation, bringing them into the light. We get to be a part of that. He preaches his gospel to people through us. What a great blessing and honor it is to be able to work on something so important and something so grand. And don't forget, we also get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. When we trust in Christ, God doesn't just say, oh, I like you now. He says, I am with you now. You will never be apart from me again. I am in you, and you are in me. What an incredible blessing. What what sum, what dollar amount would someone have to offer you for you to give up the list that I just told you, if you're a Christian? How much would it cost for somebody to come along and say, well, if you give up the Holy Spirit, if you'll forsake your church family, if you'll forget about eternity and just think about now, I'll give you billions of dollars. Would you do it? The wealth of this world cannot compare to the joy that we have in serving Christ. You have given much to follow Jesus if you are a believer. You have given Him control of your life. You have given Him your destiny and said, take me and do with what you want with my life. You have given up relationships. You have given up old habits that you used to enjoy. You have given up freedoms. But if you follow Him, you have gained so much more. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? God, we thank you for the way that you affect our hearts, Lord, with this incredible truth which is so powerful. I thank you, Lord God, that you revealed to us what we couldn't see if we sought for it ourselves for our whole life, God. Only you can change the heart of man. And so when we go out on mission, Lord God, we realize that we go out planting seeds, but none of us can save a life. That has to be your work. And we pray, God, that you would be about that work in us and through us. Lord God, let us not see our faith in you as some kind of grand sacrifice. You sacrificed. You are the one that suffered so that we might be set free. And ours is only blessing as we think about the ways that you have changed our lives to be eternally something worthwhile. I pray, God, that we would consider these verses of Scripture today. I pray that we would take them to heart. Lord, for those who have been blessed with wealth, we thank you for that, God. Please use them, uh, those individuals who have wealth and resources, to bless your kingdom. But I pray also a special protection of blessing over them, God, that you would keep them from being deceived by their own wealth. I pray, God, that you would help them to be poor in spirit, to be humble and to realize their great dependence on you, that their bank account, that their, their possessions could never insulate them or secure them in a way that you can, Lord God. Keep us strong, keep us safe. I pray for those who do not have much, Lord. May this passage of Scripture remind them that they're not missing much. If they have Christ, they have more than they could imagine. They have gifts that will endure long beyond our wealth and our resources. Father, you are the only true God, and we come to give you the glory and the credit And Father, we would be so blessed if you would multiply the meaning of this text in our lives by making us obedient to it. We praise you and thank you for all that you do in the name of Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior. Amen.